As we come to the Word of God, one of the one of the things that constantly challenges us has to do with how it is that God's Word has come to us. When John sat down to write the Gospel of John, he was not just simply recalling stories that are disconnected from any teaching that he had in mind. John wrote his Gospel with an express purpose. And as now we are delving into the the meat of this book, behooves us to remind ourselves often what the purpose for the Gospel of John is because it's one of the few books in the Scriptures that actually sits down and says explicitly what it is written for. It is written for you. You. You who are reading this book. And every Christian throughout history that has ever come across the Gospel of John and every unbeliever who has ever come across the Gospel of John, it is written for the reader that they may know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, that they might believe in his name and have life in his name. It is meant to call people to Christ. It is not meant to just give us facts about his life. Facts about his life are fascinating. In and of themselves, I love them. In fact, my whole dissertation is on certain aspects of the facts of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Matthew. I love that stuff. But the Gospel of John comes to the reader and says, I'm not going to let you sit as a bystander in skepticism or in unbelief unwarned. The reality is that those who see Christ, whether in the Gospels or whether they see Christ in person, as they were eyewitnesses to this, they have a responsibility to interact with his story in a very special way. Today we come to a passage that a lot of people are familiar with, maybe tangentially, but do not really understand the force of it. We understand that Jesus at one point, or maybe two, it's kind of debatable, overturned the money changers' tables in the temple. And those of us who look at Jesus's, you know, um, often depicted calm demeanor will point out this story and say, we don't see any calmness here. We actually see a great deal of anger towards them. The quoting of scripture, the necessity and the zeal for the house of the Lord. But it goes much deeper than that. There's a reason why John includes this story here out of place and doesn't include it in with the chronology that he's been discussing it. He brings it here and says, there was a time where the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and did this thing. And then he jumps back into the chronology of the story and continues on. When we see something like that, it really does us well in studying scripture. And when you are at home studying the scriptures yourself, when you see something break the narrative like that, pay attention. Because something important is going on. It is not something where God has inspired this word just so that we can have information and know that Jesus did this at some point. These Gospels have distinct layouts for very purpose, uh, very distinct purposes. And so if we come off of a narrative like the wedding in Cana from last week, and we drop out of what had been an unbroken narrative since the prologue, which is this day, and then the next day, and then the third day, and then this day, and then all of a sudden, that ends. And we pull out to a story in a different city, almost certainly at a different time, according to the other three Gospels, it really calls to our minds that we should sit up and take notice. There's a reason John is putting this here. 
And it's quite intentional. And I want you to see it because it's one of those fascinating passages that doesn't really get dealt with that much. Uh, and that is atrocious because it gives us one of the greatest truths of the gospel. So I want you to stand in honor of God and his word as we come to this passage. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. That is our intention. We will see how it goes. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade." His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. (laughs) The Jews said then, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed not only the scriptures, but also the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to a passage like this, desiring to understand its limitless truths. We know, Father, that every passage, while it has one meaning, has a a nearly infinitesimal amount of applications and tie-ins. We are grateful that your word has boundless application. We are grateful that your word has boundless truth and that as we stand before it, we all stand as servants. We pray that we behave as such, that we serve your word and we serve your kingdom for you are our king. We thank you, Father, for these things in your Son's name. May your Spirit, who, uh, who inspired these so many years ago, illumine our hearts this day. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. And be seated. How many times have you heard this story and figured, that, that depiction of Jesus seems a little out of sync with how we typically portray him, right? I know... A lot of portrayals of Jesus have come down through the years, whether in movie or in play form or even just in the pictures that people have have, have drawn of him. And those are usually not of this story. Those are usually of one of his parables, like him carrying a lamb or him walking next to you or having kind eyes and for some reason long hair, which men at that time didn't. having a certain picture that that makes in our mind of almost a docile almost a beggarly type fatherly figure. And so when we read a passage like this, it really pulls us out of it, doesn't it? It really makes us challenge the way that we depict Christ in our minds. Because the reality is that he was not coming to the temple that day to make friends. He was coming to the temple that day as he always came to the temple to glorify God. And let me say, while Christ is not just and simply our example, in this aspect, he is a marvelous example for the way we are to approach church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about each of us. 
Why are we in each other's lives? Why do we maintain involvement and fellowship and coming together and studying the Word of God? I cannot tell you one of the worst effects of the past couple of years has been the effect of people sitting home and saying, I listened to a sermon online, that's good enough. I cannot think of something more deadly. The reality is that the fellowship of the church is contingent upon us being in each other's presence. Just the same way as Jesus had to travel to the temple there was contingent on him actually going there. The marvelous aspect of the ultimate hope of the Christian is that one day God will live with all of mankind throughout all of the earth, everywhere at all points. But we're not there yet. And so we join here on Sunday as a foretaste of that divine dessert. Here, we hear from the Lord. Here, we understand his word. Here, we seek to fellowship with each other, not primarily for the good of each other, but for the glory of God. And I want you to see something that usually gets smoothed over in this story. Why is it Jesus is reacting so harshly like this? Obviously, there was other times where he was interacting with people who were carrying on in sinful exploits or in um, problems in their life that were unchallenged. He's run into people like this all the time. How is it that he can sit down at the table with tax collectors and sinners and eat with them, calling them to repentance. But then he goes in here and seemingly has absolutely no chill whatsoever when it comes to the money changers in the temple. It seems out of place, doesn't it? And this is where we have to understand the role of the temple, where we have to understand what Jesus is doing and why it is he has zeal for the temple. And what that means. So I want you to dive into it with me. Um, the other three synoptic gospels place this event at the end during Passover week. In fact, this was during the last week of, uh, of, of Christ's ministry. If you know the events, you have Palm Sunday. And then after that, he actually enters the temple and he overturns, overturns the money changers tables and all these things. Whether that's a different event from this or not is up for debate. But the reality is John places this here for a very specific purpose. He's not saying that this followed the wedding of Cana in Galilee because John himself is not strictly chronological. He is saying there's something to pay attention to. What is it that we should be learning about Jesus of Nazareth that makes us believe in him? Why is he consistent with the God of Israel who has been speaking to his people for 1,500 years? Why is there a consistency? Why is there a continuation? And how will that look to us? And so we see it. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Physically, it's actually up. That's what that means. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, quick thing. Were they supposed to be selling these things? The answer is yes. In fact, they were required to sell these things. The place where they're selling them is all about the issue. When Gentiles were coming in to Jerusalem during Passover, when foreign Jews were coming in to Jerusalem for Passover, they had a responsibility to offer sacrifices. At that point, it had to be in the temple. 
It wasn't up for debate. It wasn't up for argument. You couldn't just offer sacrifices at home and say, well, I just I celebrate God at home with my own goats and I sacrifice. No, you needed the priests, you needed the temple, you needed the altar. And so when Gentiles would come in to worship the God of Israel, these would actually be converts from outside of Jerusalem, from outside of Israel that were serving the God of Israel, they had to come in and purchase bulls or goats or pigeons based on how much money they had and offer them at the temple as sacrifice to the God of Israel. This is why when you read this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will actually see, especially in Mark, the quotation that Jesus also uses there. My house was to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Let me get you the setting. There's three concentric places in the temple. Not in the temple itself, but in the temple courtyards. One was for the men of Israel. They could go and pray. The other was for the women of Israel, where they could go and pray. The outer courts were for the Gentiles, where all the rabble had to come to pray. And the priests, instead of selling the sacrifices outside of the courts, sold them inside where the Gentiles were praying means the only place that you guys get to pray is a place that's covered in livestock, that's mooing, or what, is it, what sound do goats make? Screaming? Or pigeons that are cawing, or whatever is going on. It is a noisy place where money changing is taking place, and it is extremely difficult to pray with that amount of stuff going on. And the priests and the leaders of Israel specifically set it up because they did not care about Gentiles praying to their God. Now does it make sense why Jesus is so angry with them? You were the caretakers of the house where all of the world was to come to pray to the God of Israel. And you've turned the place where they were to come and serve the God of Israel into a place that's a bazaar a place where they have to come. And in order to make purchases, they have to. And they were charging exorbitant funds and they were doing it right where they were supposed to pray. It is why Jesus chases them out. And he doesn't just chase them out with words. He actually makes a whip. Now, I will tell you, this is nothing like the Jesus I heard about growing up in Sunday school class. I like this guy a lot more. Because if I see people taking advantage of those who are trying to worship God, I understand that feeling, don't you? If I see people trying to lead astray my kids, I understand this feeling, don't you? The reality is they were to take care of the temple of Israel. They were not to take it over. They were to take care of it so that all people would be able to flow to Jerusalem and worship the God of Israel because at that point, that's the only plan of the temple that they had received. Until Jesus comes into it and shows them that there's about to be a switch that takes place that's going to drive a great deal of things into a different Mode. Look at this, verse 15. He makes a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and with the oxen. Did I say goats? I meant sheep. I know what sound sheep make. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Now, he's not being vindictive. 
He's not opening their cages and setting the pigeons loose. He said, no, pick up the cages, get out of here. I'm driving the sheep out, driving the cows out, driving you guys out, everything out of here. And his disciples were watching this. As Jesus says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what it was written, that zeal for your house will consume me. Now that is a remarkable statement. One of the first messages I ever shared with all of you was on the subject of the temples of the Lord. There's a reason for that. Where God interacts with his people is the most important part of our lives. Where God interacts with his people is the most important part of our lives. Started off in Eden, where they walked with God and communed with God, a place where heaven and earth overlapped. It continued after the ark in some manner that we are not fully told about with Melchizedek and ancient Salem, a place where Abraham visited. We don't know anything about it, but we do know that God was still interacting with his people and foreigners like Abraham could worship him. And when the people of Israel were released from Exodus, of Israel, from Israel, excuse me, when Israel was released in the Exodus from Egypt, God dwelt with his people wherever they walked. Wherever they went, the tabernacle went with them. And God says, we'll make for you a place where you walk with me, but you don't have the skill to build this. And so what does he do? He sends his Holy Spirit to build the tabernacle with their ability. Calling back to what it's like to live in the presence of God, decorating it with fruit trees, but then protecting it on the front end with a veil depicting the cherubim that stood at the face of the Garden of Eden, protecting the way of life. Because where God is... There is life. When they settled into the promised land, it wasn't the whole of the promised land that was the temple, no. It was the tabernacle. It dwelt at Shiloh. It got moved to Jerusalem, and then they built the temple there. And that temple was filled with the glory of the Lord, because why? Where the glory of the Lord is, there is life. Imagine how difficult it was to see that temple destroyed. When they came back from captivity from Persia, Zerubbabel built another temple. But everyone was so frustrated because that temple was not filled with the glory of the Lord in the same manner as the previous one. God was pulling back from Israel. And then after this, soon after this, another generation after this, the last prophet was sent and God didn't even speak to them anymore. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that must have been? Zerubbabel's temple had been damaged, was small, was insignificant, and Herod came along before Christ was born and rebuilt it into something magnificent and unbelievable. In fact, if you go to Israel today and see the Wailing Wall, those are just the foundation stones. Just the foundation stones, and they are enormous. 
The temple itself, Herod's temple, had a grandeur to it that most ancient buildings never even imagined to have a part of. It is that temple that Jesus walked into. It is that temple that the people of Israel looked on Gentiles with scorn, those who served the God of Israel and traveled far during Passover to worship him and to offer sacrifices. They refused to provide for them a place where they could actually pray and interact with the God of Israel in service to him. Why is it that zeal for the house of the Lord will consume the Lord Christ? Because it has always been a picture of what was to come. And is the first place where John makes this connection. This man who's walking around in Israel in the first century is not just a man. We've already learned this. He is God himself who created the world, who created all things, and all things subsist through him. And he, the word, became flesh. And he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And here John is giving little instances of his glory peeking through an otherwise dark world. And here is one of the things of glory. It loves the place where God meets his people. The glory of God loves the place where God meets his people. There was a time in my life where I looked for an excuse not to go to church. Let me warn you against that. Let me warn you against that. Not for my sake, for yours. Not because what you receive in this building is better than any other building, no. I don't care where it is, and I know I shouldn't even say that as a representative of a specific church organization. I care you, Christian fellowship with other Christians on the Lord's day. Do not believe the lies that are floating around that watching something and not engaging and not interacting is sufficient. It's not. The glory of the Lord loves where the God of his people interacts with his people. And where does that happen? It happens when his people gather to glorify him. That is what we do on Sunday mornings. We are not coming here to earn anything. We are not coming here to accomplish anything. We are coming here to glorify our God. And he loves interacting with us here in his word and in his people and in our love for one another. The glory of God loves to interact with his people. You say, well, why is it church? Why can't it be just anywhere? Listen to the words of Jesus. Tear this building down, and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, first of all, if you saw Herod's temple, every one of us would have laughed that day. When the Romans completely destroyed that temple in 70 A.D., about 40 years after this, it took them over a year just to throw everything off the precipice. All the rocks, all the stones, and yes, all the people. It took them forever. Why? 
because the temple was so imposingly enormous. And imagine a building of that magnitude for a little rabbi to walk up into it to throw everyone out. What's the first question? What gives you the right to do this? Look at these stones. Look at this place. And so the Jews said to him, verse 18, what sign, and there it is, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign? Because if you're capable of the authority to do this, to fix the temple of God, you must have an authority that is unlike anything else. So do it. Do a sign. Do a trick. And this is what John is writing his gospel showing, that Jesus indeed has done signs, but here's the wonderful thing. Jesus isn't standing there doing signs to show them his authority. He just speaks to them the word of God. He just gives them the commands of it. Why? Because it is his house too. The God of Israel and the God who created the world does not have to defend himself. And yet, we have four Gospels here showing his validation of who he is and why he can do these things. And the Jews that were coming up to him were desiring a sign. You need signs. You need something that accompanies this message. And what does Jesus say? I will give you one sign. One sign. And it's not going to be picking up a rock and turning it into bread. It's not going to be healing a blind man. It's not going to be raising Lazarus to the dead. No, no. It's not even going to be walking on the Sea of Galilee. What is the sign he's going to give them? Someone, speak it up. Say again. His resurrection. You want a sign that I can tell you not to turn the Lord's house into a house of trade, a place where Gentiles can't worship the God of Israel, I will save the world from its sin. And I will do so by laying my life down and picking it back up again. And you will call this to your mind after I am raised from the dead. Watch this. Jesus answered them and says, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. (laughs) Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up then in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I don't imagine there's many more important phrases that go into the study of the temple than that phrase, where he connects their understanding of what the temple's purpose was with his body. Knock this temple down, and I will raise it up in three days. And they are focused on stones. And he says, no, no, my body. Which means, as John is depicting for us, the story of the gospel happens at the crux of all history. What had once been a garden and an ark, and a tent, and a building of stones, and alabaster, and cedars, and a building again of stone and cedars, and now a building of massive stones, and porcelain, and marble, and unbelievable building, is now an unassuming guy that you could pass on the street without recognizing him. That is a massive shift 
a massive shift because here's the thing. Jesus' body in the grave means the temple of the Lord was destroyed and he raised it up again. But here's the most fantastic thing. Why did I connect this to taking part in church? What is the church now? Once Christ ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, what did the community of believers become? Two phrases. The temple of the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. This is where, in our fellowship, heaven touches earth. This is why it is important when we talk about our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not your body and your body and your body and your body. No, this body is the temple. We are living stones mortared into the temple with the grace of God. You cannot be removed. You cannot be shaken. And this temple will not fail, for it is not a temple of this earth. It is heaven's side solving earth's problem. This is where Jesus was called these things. Why? He is the Savior of the world. How? He will remove the sin from this world. Whether through salvation or judgment, sin will be done away with. And as Jesus makes this comparison to himself, he spends this time. They're all standing in this unbelievable building. And he says, tear it down, I'll build it up in three days. This building was just a shadow of me. Just a shadow. And how easy is it for us to go back to shadows and things that were just meant to point us to Christ. That was the whole point of the temples. To just show us Christ. Where is it that the mercy of God rests? Where is it that God will save his people? Where is it that atonement will be made and the priests live and the high priest delivers atonement and a scapegoat for our sins? Where is it that we find hope finally that will never disappoint? We should see it walking around in Jerusalem, not in the temple, but as just man walking in the street. And that is how he would appear to our eyes. There would be no fire tornado like on top of the tabernacle with him. There would be no smoke surrounding him like the temple was at the beginning of Solomon's building of it. No. He had no form or comeliness that you and I would naturally desire him. Just a guy. That's what it would look like to our eyes. But what John is doing is he's not starting like the other three Gospels with his birth or with the story of his ministry. No, he starts in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made through him. There was nothing that was made that wasn't made through him. Continue on, continue on. That word became flesh and dwelt with us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten the Father. And you say, did it look like fire? Did it look like a pillar of smoke? Did it look like a cloud filling the tabernacle, filling the temple? No. Grace and truth. 
When he spoke, it was on par with Scripture. When he acted, it was the actions of Yahweh. When he delighted in things, it was the delight of God. When he hated things, it was the hatreds of God. What is it that makes this man so unique is that he's not just a man. I cannot wrap my head around the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Those who have ever read the Gospel of John know it is constantly this hammer blow of this is the divine God who is the Son of God himself walking in flesh and dwelling with us. And that affected us in ways that are unimaginable. We desire him, not the temple, says a Jewish man. We want to see him glorified. Why? Because we know if he is glorified and we are with him, that is where God is. It is so tempting for us, especially in modern societies where we are not part and parcel to stories of miracles in our in our nation's history, for instance. John came from a nation whose history involved true prophets of the Lord working miracles that would blow our minds. And he says, I want him. And said all that. So many times, Christians desire for the extreme parts of life, for the fantastic, for the signs, for the wonders, for the extravagant, and that we think that those things will happen somewhere else because that's where God's at work doing things randomly. When in reality, it is in the temple of God and in service to the temple of God that the grandest things are ever done. John knew this, and he's writing about the temple of God as he walks around. My friends, do you know the gift that Christian fellowship is? I've been studying it for decades. I can't find the bottom of its grandeur. We are not here so that we can get something. We are not here because God needs something. We are here because just as the glory of God loves to interact with us, we love to interact with the glory of God. Where does that primarily happen? When he speaks and when he saves. And us who serve the Lord should not be looking for the Lord in wonders and signs. We learn from the story of the Exodus, the evil side of the spiritual realm can do these too. What we should learn instead is to love that God interacts with us in the normal things of life. When we come together to pray, when we come together to sing, when we come together to worship our God and to hear from his word, and I don't mean my thoughts about it, I mean his word. 
That is where God does the deep work of miraculous work on our lives. He gives us new desires, new loves, new forces in our lives that didn't exist. Does that mean we'll be perfect? No. Anyone tells you that they've reached some level of Christian perfectionism, may I afford you a warning? Those are the ones who are best at hiding it. Those are the ones who would put the cows and the sheep with the second-class Christians in the outside of the temple. No, we have come to Christ, and he is our hope of glory, means there is nothing that I need from any one person save him alone. He is not just necessary for my salvation, he is sufficient for it. And where he is, I desire to be. And what he does, I want to join. Verse 21, he says he's speaking about the temple of his body. And we know as the scriptures continue on that that picture comes straight to the church. And it's more than a picture. It was no accident that little fire tornadoes were sitting on top of Christians' heads in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. That is a direct picture to the tabernacle. Undeniable. That is a picture of us. That is a description of what happens here. And I want you to see this marvelous thing. Once Christ was raised from the dead, John says in Retroflex, we all finally remembered. We remembered that he said these things and that he did these things. And we were saying, he did build it back in three days. He actually built it back in three days. His disciples remembered this and watched the parallel. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus said. Divine authority in both. They believed everything that he was doing. Let me say for you, when you hear the words that our body, the church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, what does that make you think? I better do good works? What it should do is make you think instead of this, where the body of Christ is, where the temple of the Lord is, there is the glory, and I love it. There is the glory. And as the church is the body of Christ, it too will be torn down. It too will go to the grave. Why do you think I preach on this all the time? We will go to our graves if we have the same course of life and the same unending history that every generation of Christians has ever known Churches used to be used with graveyards next to them to depict this very thing. We fellowship in here, we will then fellowship out there, and we will all await the one promise that we have that God will one day raise us up to. Death cannot be the last word anymore. Not for those who are the body of Christ. Not for those who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It cannot defeat the promises of God. Not, will not, cannot. It has not the power anymore. And that is so hard for us to see sometimes. Because death is an all-encompassing, unnatural experience. We were not created to die. We were created to live in the temple of God's garden forever. 
But now that sin has joined us, death is a necessity and a mercy that we would not live sinful forever. Someday, despite all the people I love in my life, I will lay my head down in my grave too. And I will anticipate knowing the glory of God that I have interacted with my whole life and see it face to face. We're practicing here for there. And I don't just mean heaven. I mean when Christ, who made all things, makes all things new. We serve a God, not that created the world. We serve the God that is the creator of the world. This is his, and we are his. And his promises not only will not fail, cannot fail, because he said it. That is our God. Do not find hope or solidity in any other promise. Do not place your hope or your solidity in me or in each other. We will all of us let each other down. Every single one of us. Do not place your hope in any of these things. If it is, I promise you, you will hate your life. Place your hope in Christ only. He's not just necessary he is sufficient. Let's glorify our God. Let's pray. Our Father, may that same zeal for your house, for your body, for the body of Christ, fill our minds and our hearts. May we seek to glorify you in the midst of your people not because we have to, but because we get to. What a glorious gift you have given to us. We thank you, Father, that you have not given us signs and wonders, but that you have recorded our names in heaven. That you have not kept record of the sins that lie so close to us nor those filthy righteousnesses that keep trying to take over. But that the whole record of debt is canceled against us. That our sins, for the sake of Christ's sacrifice, are covered. That his righteousness is gifted to us. That when you look at us, you see Christ. You do not see us and our failures. I don't even know how to say it other than thank you for Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for salvation. Amen.